0: The Memorial Day holiday is a day that we remember men and women who have died in serving the armed forces. Today, we can all be grateful for those who have sacrificed their lives, enabling us to enjoy the freedoms in our country that we have. And so we want to begin by acknowledging the loss of your family members in the armed forces, those who have died while serving in the military, and we want to bless those of you who have family members now currently serving, uh, in, in the military, uh, in, in, in any theater around the world. This week, countless other families experienced a devastating loss from one of the deadliest tornadoes in United States history. As, uh, many of us looked, uh, with, with, uh, shock at the, the tragedy in the suburb of Oklahoma City there and more where a tornado killed at least 24 people. No doubt you've seen pictures of the pulverized school, the buildings, as well as completely splintered homes. And um, traumatic events like what we've seen this week kind of serve to reorient all of our perspective, don't they, uh, from an eternal point of view about what's important in life. Now, last week we launched a new sermon series titled Becoming Good Neighbors, In preparation for the months ahead, we're taking a closer look at God's command to love our neighbors because it lies at the core of His plan for our lives. In this time together, we're asking the Holy Spirit for simple, practical help in loving the people that God's already placed around us. And our hope is that as we join Jesus in the work that He's already doing in their lives, we're going to grow personally and spiritually, will grow to be healthier people filled with joy, peace, and hopefully a, a larger sense of our purpose and place here in the world. And our church family will begin to reflect Jesus even more closely. Now, in today's message, people are not projects. We're going to discover two things, that all people matter to God and that he's already at work in their lives. So let's pray together. Lord, at the start of this brand new day, this brand new week, we pause to, uh, just thank you. We say thank you, Lord, for the health and soundness of, uh, mind and body that enable us to gather. We thank you for the freedoms we enjoy and those who have paid for our freedom by the sacrifice of their very lives. Lord, we, we are deeply grateful for uh, this privilege and we pray your blessing on those families that have paid the ultimate price as well we pray for those lord in oklahoma city that that it, whose lives have been forever changed because of what they've endured may your grace extend to them today lord as we gather would you inspire us to worship would you enrich our relationships with one another would you equip us for ministry and love and service this week. And Lord, thank you for the church, uh, th- th- this church's chances to serve you even today. Like right next door in Vineyard Kids where our kids are learning to know you, to love you and uh, serve you. Put your power on their gathering together today. Put your power on your word to all of our lives is our prayer in your name. Amen. Today is the day of the sound bite. A soundbite is a uh, short phrase or sentence that's extracted from a a longer speech, an interview, or another audio track that captures the essence of what the speaker is trying to say. The term was coined by members of the U.S. media during the presidency of Ronald Reagan. Um, He was famous for short, memorable phrases like, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And for those of you who don't remember... It, that was, it was a reference to an increasing social demand to demolish the Berlin Wall. Now, today, politicians and journalists and bloggers and Hollywood moguls, communicators of every stripe, often try to drill down difficult or complex conversations into one simple, witty, catchy, quoteworthy statement. After all, you have 140 characters in a tweet. This week. Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon lamented the loss of life, especially the children who were killed in the tornadoes. But she celebrated the town's resilience as she declared, we will rebuild and we will regain our strength. Leonard Pitts, who is an op-ed writer for the Miami Herald, whose opinions appear in the Peoria Journal-Star, addressed the gun control debate uh, and a pr- uh, prototype handgun that was made from a 3D printer by stating, it should have been the shot heard around the world, but chances are you didn't hear it. Chicago Bears uh, receiver Earl Bennett tweeted uh, about linebacker great Brian Urlacher's retirement this week by saying, great player, great teammate, awesome person. Sound bites. Now, on one occasion... Jesus actually delivered the quintessential soundbite. He was asked by a lawyer to reduce everything important to one command. And we can read Jesus' reply in Mark's Gospel, the 12th chapter. If you open your Bible there or your Bible app to Mark chapter 12, you can follow the text on the screen as well. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So Jesus replied, not with one, but with two equally important commands. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this teaching has subsequently been known as the great commandment. This is the entire Bible in one soundbite. This is the Bible drilled down to its simplest form, a little longer than a tweet, but not much. And I'll keep saying it because it's true. This command, if acted upon by everyone who believes in Jesus, would change the world. Now, last week, we started looking at one particularly memorable story that Jesus told to illustrate this appeal to learn to love your neighbor. The text is found in Luke 10 verses 30 to 37. We call it the parable of the good Samaritan. I won't read the whole story, but let me recapture it for you. A Jewish man was beaten by thieves and left for dead at the side of the road. Both a priest and a temple assistant came by, observed, and then crossed the other side of the road and passed on by. Then a despised Samaritan came along, saw the injured Jewish man, had compassion on him, and took the colossal risk of crossing very strict social, cultural, religious, and even racial boundaries, and treated the man's wounds, transported him to a local inn, spent the night administering care, and paid the bill with a promise of future reimbursement. And Jesus concluded that powerful, illustrative story with these words when he said, Now, which of these three would you say was neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The lawyer replied, Well, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, Yes. Now go and do the same. So he appeals for us to be that kind of neighbor. Now, last week we said that in this parable, Jesus is calling us to action. But Jesus is not advocating for evangelism as we know it. Now, there's that dreaded E word, right? Evangelism. This word conjures up the worst possible images in most of our minds, doesn't it? Why is that? Probably because evangelism, as we've experienced it, or as the church has practiced it, is embarrassing and awkward at best, or painful and even damaging at the worst. Now, please understand, I am not in any fashion issuing a sweeping denunciation of 2,000 years of the church's ministry of outreach. Not at all. I'm speaking, in many ways, of our experience in the Western church in the last 200 years. Many of us were raised in the church and were taught various evangelism strategies. And I'm quite sure, uh, quite certain, that the people who developed the strategies, taught them, and used them were well-intended. Many of us have. Some of you are here today because of those very evangelism strategies. But because so many of our approaches to evangelism are focused solely on the issues of heaven and hell, uh, we're, we're often trying to like close the deal, aren't we? We're trying to get someone to pray the sinner's prayer so they go from an outsider to an insider. And in this sense, evangelism is often equated with pressure. It means Selling Jesus, or Jesus, oh, forgive me, Lord, I'm, I'm just sorry. As if he were like vinyl siding or replacement windows, you know. Perhaps we were schooled in the Roman road, which is where we take five verses from the book of Romans and lay out the plan of salvation. Salvation. Campus Crusade gave us the four spiritual laws. Now, I I might remind you that this pamphlet is perhaps the most widely distributed religious booklet in history, with over 2.5 billion sold or distributed. Still others of us were raised using the bridge diagram or the, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go, plan I'm not critical of any one of these particular approaches. I've probably used them all in my 38 years as a Christ follower. Thousands of people, tens of thousands are now in the kingdom. Perhaps you are because of one of these approaches. My point is just this, that evangelism is often either experienced or practiced as Christian sales. We even call it soul-winning. People are evangelism projects to whom we deliver content-filled arguments with an intention to persuade them. And it's a process that fundamentally lacks loving relationships, the very thing that Jesus said was most important. Now, in this parable, I would suggest that Jesus is advocating a different kind of approach to evangelism. He is calling us to simply love people by becoming good neighbors, just like the Samaritan did in the story. Now, most of the disciples of Christ that I've known in the nearly four decades that I've been a Christ follower have at their core a fundamental desire to share his love with others. Whether they live in a, a colony in Doña Chinita, Mexico, in a village on the Amazon River, in a high-rise apartment building in Beijing, China, or here in the raging metropolis of Peoria. Whether they worship in a liturgical Catholic or Missouri Synod Lutheran or a Bible Belt Baptist, or a charismatic word of faith, IHOP Bethel Vineyard Church. Uh, they want other people to experience the genuine joy and freedom they've found in Jesus. That's what many of you that are Christ followers really want. But most of us don't feel particularly good at evangelism or witnessing. We think we're not smart or clever enough, uh, we don't know what to say. We, we can't memorize the scripts. The verses of Scripture don't roll off of our tongue. We honestly don't think that our story is very impressive. Or, by golly, you know, we've had friendships that have gone on for years, and now it's a little awkward to say, oh, hey, by the way, let me tell you the most important thing in my life. We simply don't have many non-Christian friends anymore. You know, we've kind of lost orbit with people that don't really know Jesus. Now, I'm suggesting that in the parable, Jesus is encouraging us to rethink our approaches to evangelism as rather just love people and become good neighbors. This is irreducibly simple, utterly profound, and entirely impossible without the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, where do we start? Well, I think that one of the first steps that we can take as we lean into becoming good neighbors is to understand that all people matter to God. It's not coincidence that Jesus illustrated the good neighbor in the story by using a Samaritan. That's because the Jews had judged the Samaritans as racial half-breeds, pagans the enemies of God, and they certainly didn't see them as their neighbors, nor as loved by God, the God whom they were supposed to represent to all the world. As the Samaritan reached out in love and compassion to the injured Jewish man, Jesus was teaching that all people matter to God, especially those that are different from you, even your enemies, even your literal neighbors. Now, if we want to see what God is like, we have to look at Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us in the first chapter that Jesus expresses the very character of God. Jesus himself told the disciples, "Uh, if, if you look at me, you've seen the Father. Anyone who's seen me has seen God the Father. So that tells us we look at Jesus, we get a glimpse at what God is like. Now, when I look at the Jesus that's recorded in the Gospels, I see this very thing that all people mattered to God. A lonely, socially ostracized leper, Luke chapter 5, a centurion in the Roman army, Luke 7, a psychotic homeless man living in the cemetery, Luke 8, a Jewish religious official, an adulterous woman, a hated tax collector, uh, well-connected uh, wealthy insiders and uh, Gentile outsiders, uh, blue bloods, and the influential and the poor commoners and the average middle class working people, they all mattered to God. And when we read the Gospels, the life of Christ, over and over again, what we see time after time after time is that in his words and in his works, Jesus declared God the Father's inexhaustible, never-ending love for all people everywhere. That is the inescapable life message. All people matter to God. Now, here's our problem. While implicitly acknowledging this to be true, We often judge and classify people as to whether or not they're capable or worthy of receiving God's love, don't we? Yeah, Bill's honest. He's acknowledging that that's the case. The rest of you can go like that because it's true. That's human nature. Maybe it's their color, maybe it's their culture, their economic class, their clothes, their personal hygiene, a dozen other filters We look at those things and we think, there's no way they'd be open to the love of God. We judge them and classify them. And then we're demotivated to connect. So Jesus wants us to suspend our judgments, all the filters we put on people, because all people matter equally to him. God so loved the world. That's everyone. All around us. Everywhere we live, we work, we play, we go to school, we do our shopping, we eat out, we do life, all around us are people who matter to God. All the people on the planet are created in his image. All the people on the earth are of great worth and value. All the people on the earth are the objects of his inexhaustible, never-ending love. And Jesus is calling us to become good neighbors. Every single person matters to God. Even your annoying coworker or classmate who's always asking for a, a favor, your upstairs apartment neighbor who always plays loud music at all hours of the night, even your family member who owes you money. And to make the illustration more universal, even your blank, insert person, who does blank, insert annoying habit, Or obnoxious behavior. Okay? Even your blank, who does blank? Yeah, God loves them. Now, Jesus instructed that our goal is to love people who matter to him, not necessarily try to convert them to Christianity. The Samaritan didn't try to convince the Jewish man to give up Judaism to renounce it and embrace Samaritanism. Not at all. Rather, he was just moved with compassion and he ministered and reached out to him at his point of need. Likewise, friends, people are never our evangelism projects. To view a person as a project is to approach the great commandment. From a fundamentally flawed perspective, becoming good neighbors is much more about cultivating a God honoring relationship than it is about converting someone to Christianity. Let me explain. In some ways, aren't, aren't we all like, Keenly aware of how trying to convert someone is inconsistent with neighborliness and friendship. I mean, haven't all of us been on the receiving end of a sales pitch? When your good friends say they'd like to come over for dinner and, and you say, sure, come on over. And they show up with a tie on and a briefcase at the door and you think, oh no. You know, maybe you've had friends and family, coworkers that have done that. Yeah. Don't people already tend to feel that Christians are those that see themselves as privileged and the exclusive elite holders of information that others desperately need to know and finally ultimately agree with? Yeah, that's why people look at us. Christ followers. And our relationships can be perceived as having ultimately one goal, to convert them to finally like give up. Okay, I agree. You know, that the people feel that that pressure from us. And I'm suggesting that our ulterior motive in becoming good neighbors can never be to share the gospel. We have to drop the agenda, the agenda of our well-meaning tendency to be friends with people for for the sole purpose of converting them to our faith. That's not the point of the parable. We're called to be good neighbors period. Love others, period. Jesus never called us to a bait-and-switch approach, where we become friends and good neighbors only so we can eventually share spiritual truths with them. We're called to love people, period. And whether the people who matter to God and who are the object of his inexhaustible and never-ending love, whether they ever take steps towards God, is beside the point. We should remain friends with them, even when they uh, say they're not interested, rather than disassociate from them as if they have a bad virus. Because that shows our ulterior motive. We're missing the point. We're called to be good neighbors, love people, and then leave the converting up to him. Now, one of our first challenges then is going to be as we become good neighbors is to invite the Holy Spirit to expose and deal with our attitudes towards and our beliefs about other people in the process. Do, do I really relate to others with non-judgmental acceptance? Do do I let certain filters stand in the way of who I think is Lovable by God, or or worthy of receiving His kingdom? Do I judge and classify people who who's, who who are capable of receiving the love of God? Have I faced my own prejudices like the Samaritan did, and the priest and the Levite did not do? Do I look at all people around me as as the object of God's inexhaustible love? Am I engaging in relationships with a purpose to win them to Jesus or because God calls me to love people, period? Do I have compassion for people or not? These are the kinds of questions that are are at the very front end of, of learning to become good neighbors. So becoming good neighbors begins with a change of mind and heart about people. And this change of attitude, this change of belief, hopefully results in an outward turning around uh, where we actually begin with, with a, a properly motivated heart and compassion for people to connect with them in relationship because that's what God calls us to do, love him, love others, period. This means we're going to have to be willing to leave the safety and security of the confines of our nice life spaces our apartment, our condo, our mobile home, our home, our neighborhood, our church family, our social circles, and actually step out and be willing to be a neighbor, a decent human being. And we don't start this process by being religious, by quoting the Bible, or necessarily inviting someone to our church or our small group uh, the very first time we, we have a conversation. Uh, we don't necessarily start there. We just start by valuing people, by being warm and human and friendly and neighborly, compassionate and caring. So in this process, we will certainly meet people. We'll begin to ask questions. We'll discover a little bit about their life story. Conversations will begin to emerge. Relationships begin to, to, uh, develop and, and there may be an opportunity for us to at some point, cross the bridge of relationship when they ask questions about the most important values in our life. And we'll share some of the steps that we can take that that are genuinely Christ-honoring in the next couple of weeks, how these relationships can develop. But I want to suggest that we don't even worry right now about the content of all those conversations. Just get them started. Be warm and friendly, neighborly. As we begin to cultivate friendships, And we engage in conversation. I think it's also helpful to remember that God is already at work in all people. It it may be news to some of us. We're not bringing the kingdom. It's already here. God's been at work in the people that you're relating to long before you arrived on the scene. God is at work in everyone. Now God tells us in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, that's in the clean section of the Bible that you rarely read, that he's planted eternity in the heart of all people. I think that this means, among other things, that in some capacity, God's already at work in the lives of everyone, even though we often cannot see it. They are dealing, they, people, are dealing with the issues of ultimate concern because that's what it means to be a human a human being that's made in the image of God. They're wondering, is there a God? And if there is, how can I really get to know her or him? Uh, What happens after I die? And, and, And how does anybody really ever know? How do I cope with perpetual feelings of guilt, trying to be good and failing, or figuring out my purpose in life with my crummy job? Or do I really have a destiny? Where do I get help from my feelings of inadequacy in raising my children or my horrible marriage? Is there really value in church? After all, how do I explain the horrible experiences I had and my family had when we used to go there? Those are the things that they're wrestling with, although they may never tell you right away. I think that people ultimately want to engage in these kinds of things that really matter. And I find this very encouraging. Here's why. Jesus wants us to, to find meaningful ways to connect with people that matter to him and whom he loves. He wants us to build friendships where they feel comfortable exploring these kinds of issues without fear of reprisal or judgment. Where they can be open and honest and share their deep heart and their concerns without feeling like they're going to get a sales job. That we listen with warmth and empathy and compassion and then we have a chance to relate our story. And so this means that since God's already at work in them, that, that seldom is, is our job to, to like start a fire from scratch in their life. There's already a fire burning. Now, admittedly, you know, that candle may be just a flicker. It may be just a glow of faith. Uh, it, there may be a flame of desire that's buried under a bunch of stuff, but it's there. And rather than criticizing the flame for how weak it is and inconsistent it is and how small it is, we we should view our job as privileged to fan it into flame through relationship, loving relationship. The Holy Spirit's already at work in their heart, and we can have confidence that, that Jesus is already working to draw all people to himself. We don't need to direct or control the process and get nervous and jerky about it. Now, we may have to get patient, very patient. We may have to pray for spiritual eyes to see where God is working. We may have to pray for ears to hear in our conversation where God is working. And frankly, in many cases, it may take years of cultivating relationship and trust before we have the equity. In the meantime, we're called to be their friend and be their neighbor. Let me just tell you a brief story. A number of years ago, in in our neighborhood, on Emerson Drive in Champaign, we had a block party. We hosted a lot of those. One of my neighbors, uh, our wives knew one another, but but we didn't know each other very well. But uh, he's a very, Scott was a very intelligent scientist with a well-respected job at the University of Illinois, uh, internationally known in his particular field of endeavor, known around the world, brilliant uh, man. He pulled me aside quietly, and in the course of that evening, in in what was probably our first substantive conversation, he shocked me by telling me of the struggle he'd had believing in God. Now, perhaps Scott knew that I was a pastor, and maybe because our wives were good friends, he felt safe. When Scott was 17, his best friend contracted leukemia, and his pastor of the church in which he was attending said, well, you just should pray for that, uh, your friend, to be healed. So Scott did, and his friend died. And Scott wanted to know, after all these years, and that he was now in his 40s, uh, why didn't God answer my prayers? He hadn't believed in God since. Well, I surprised Scott by saying, I don't have a clue why God didn't answer your prayer, quite honestly, and I'm not going to manufacture a reason. I don't know why God didn't answer your prayer, but I said, but I, I'd love to explore the the possibilities. And so that exchange, which he later told, uh, his wife told my wife that the most surprising thing of our conversation was when I actually, as a Christian and a pastor, admitted to him that I didn't know something. <laughs> yeah, there might be a lesson in there for all of us. That exchange led to a growing friendship that became marked by a two-year-long series of weekly Lunches on the campus at the U of I, where Scott and I uh, talked about and and focused intently on his deep questions about God, life, and the Bible. I did much more listening than I did answering because most of the questions, honestly, I didn't know the answers to. They were brilliant and complex, and often buried in enigma and mystery. The kinds of things that we don't only know the answers to. He wanted to talk about the things of ultimate concern, and I I enjoyed uh, relating to Scott in that manner. Now, I need to tell you the rest of the story, is that after about a two-year span of time, as quickly as they started, the lunches stopped without explanation. And then shortly thereafter, he and his wife uh, separated, divorced, and moved out of the neighborhood, and we've lost contact. I don't have any idea what those two years did, but... It wasn't my job to convert, Scott. It was my job to be a neighbor and engage in conversations around the things that really matter. Now, some people try really hard to deny those questions, don't they? Maybe you have. Or they're buried beneath a, a landslide of sin and poor choices and hurt and pain. It's difficult to really deal honestly with them. But... They're still there. Those things are still there. God is still at work in their life. Your classmates, your roommates, your family, your friends, your neighbors, the, the, the people in the apartment upstairs, the waitress at B-dubs this afternoon where, where you go for lunch, uh, the, the checkout clerk at Kroger or Sam's, your coworkers, all around you. These people are people in whom God is already at work. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what experience shows us. And many of these folks, perhaps even some of you, you're experiencing the Holy Spirit. They're experiencing the Holy Spirit. They don't have a clue what's happening to them. They need someone to come alongside in the attitude of love and trust and help them understand. Maybe they're being convicted of guilt. Maybe they have a sense that they should return to church after all. Maybe they're praying in secret but never telling anybody. Maybe... They're longing for reality in their spiritual journey. They just don't see much of it in the churches that they visited or the Christians that they know. But they're looking for real answers. God the Holy Spirit is already reaching out to them in a wide variety of ways. The Holy Spirit is is big. There's a wideness in how God reaches people through beauty and humor and music and art and creation and uh, joy and pain. He's reaching out to people, and they don't have a clue what's happening. They just know that something is stirring. And in many ways, part of the joy of loving God and loving others, part of the joy in relationships is going to be, at some point, God willing, we're going to be able to come alongside of them and help them understand what God is doing. That is, he's drawing them to himself, and he's wanting them to become a part of his big story. And when we're privileged by God to actually play that role in people, it's going to be awesome. So just be encouraged. God is already at work. He's doing one of two things, friends. He's either trying to get into the hearts of those people who've not experienced him, or he's trying to get out of the hearts of those of us who have in order that we might become a good neighbor and be a blessing to others to experience his love and mercy and truth and power. God's at work in everybody either getting in or getting out. He wants us to be that kind of neighbor who shares his, his mercy and his goodness and his care, just like the Samaritan did to the injured Jewish man in the story. Let me wrap it up by saying this. So the first things that we've discovered in becoming good neighbors is that all people matter to God, Because they're created in his image, they're worthy of dignity and respect, and God is already working in their lives. Now, sadly, we know that God's image, the the Imago Dei in every person, it's been marred by sin and selfishness. Consequently, all people, regardless of their race, their creed, their culture, are separated from God the Father. And they need to be reconciled to God, but they just don't know how. Their spirits have have grown cold or desensitized or dulled over time. And we all know that some sinners are really pleasant people. We actually kind of like being around them. They're fun. Others, they're very broken. Their lives are messy. They've been complicated by sin and wrong choice. Still, others can just be downright nasty and ugly, aren't they? (laughs) You don't want to be around them at all. They have idiosyncrasies and habits that drive you crazy. They have personalities that, uh, and, and maybe temperaments that just grate on you, especially if they're your family. Uh, they can be mean-spirited, evil people. And so becoming good neighbors isn't necessarily easy, is it? No, not at all. It's not through sheer willpower and determination that we can, like, I'm going to obey the great command. We can't just grit our teeth and decide that, bless God, we're going to love them anyway. Because we have tried that and we've all failed miserably. We need to be changed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, Christianity, loving God, loving others, is not a self-improvement program. It's not a, it doesn't come out of a self-help book. It's about fundamentally being changed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what we cannot do in our own strength. And what I love is that w- w- when we surrender our life to Jesus, he makes us new. We become somebody that didn't exist before. And now, since the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, God can give us the capacity to see people the way he sees them and to love people the way he loves them in a way that that totally circumvents our own ability. So part of the good news of the gospel of Christ is that becoming a Christ follower changes our spiritual genetics in a way that our attitude and heart towards other people can actually be different. We can be empowered by the Holy Spirit to love people in a way that didn't exist before. Every one of you who is a Christ follower is a brand new person. That is your identity. The old you is gone. A new one has come to life. A new one. A new one that that is now capable of being filled with and empowered with the Holy Spirit to love other people and actually become a good neighbor. Lord, we're thankful that uh, wow, we've tried to love others on our own, it hasn't worked, but that you can change and empower us to see people the way you see them, to love them the way you love them, and to have for them a longing to come into your family. God, I pray that wherever we're at on this journey of becoming good neighbors, that you would continue to, by your Holy Spirit, see people and love people the way you do. Help us to become the good neighbors that you want us to be. Human, friendly, neighborly, warm. Help us start this week, wherever we're at, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to be more like you. Now, Lord, we offer up to you these uh, these gifts and our songs as proof, as tokens that we want our lives to really count in your name. Receive them for what they are. Amen.